Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. The ADHD brain is always looking for dopamine, creative food, input that's going to feed it. Um, And there are some settings that are less structured that actually provide that. But really, it comes down to understanding individually what kind of brain does this child have and what how does the ADHD actually manifest itself in real life not just because we're saying they have ADHD but like in real life how do they have ADHD and what setting would make the most sense for them simply saying that somebody has ADHD doesn't really tell us that much about on an average Monday how does the ADHD actually show up how does it convert to behavior or habits or skill deficits or challenges in the way that they have to function in their world. Are they so distractible they're not getting their work done? Are they so distractible they're not learning in the classroom? Are they so hyperactive they can't be seated? Their parents have suspended uh, activities and vacations because the hyperactivity is too, too much to manage. You tell me, in that little equalizer way, you know, exactly which symptoms, at what level, in what settings for this child, and then we have a really good understanding of this particular person's version or rhythm of ADHD. I think it is so important for children and anybody with ADHD to hear and really begin to understand how their brain can also be extraordinary. We don't want to sort of oversell the superpowers to the point where they don't pay attention to the challenges. But if they can really hone in on the fact that, I mean, I have seen kids, their brains put make me feel like in awe of what they're capable of doing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Yamalis Diaz, and she works in the field of child and adolescent psychology. Her specialty is ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. And listen, we're talking about somebody who works a lot with child and adolescents, but that's us too. Because in some ways, ADHD is an extension really of normal human behavior that's maybe turned up a little bit and getting an understanding of that. Because I think a lot of us, we hear things, diagnoses that get thrown around, people are throwing medicine or, you know, treatments at it. And is it right for your child or yourself? And what is going on? What's going on with the structure of your brain? What's going on the function of your brain? And by the way, because it's different doesn't make it good or bad. It just makes it different. We live in a world with a certain system. We're all supposed to sort of adhere to this way, like sit down at a desk and, you know, this is how we're learning. And not everyone's like that. And so she really breaks it down. What are what are the, you know, clusters of behavior that show up that you go, oh, maybe my child or myself has this going on, what's going on inside the brain, and what can you do to support them naturally through lifestyle, through different systems in place of types of communication, finding that homeostasis, but then creating these outlets for, you know, intense creativity, because that's the other thing. It's really important to to not stigmatize this, to, to look at this as 
okay, this person works and learns differently. And also within this, there's a lot of magic if we can help them get to the place where they can, you know, be creative and be hyper-focused and all of these things that a lot of time works out when we're adults, but it's just really a challenge when you're sending a kid who's got to be on a schedule and they've got to get to school. So she really breaks it down. There's so much information in understanding ADHD and the research and, and things that are out there and available to support the person and the people around the person. So I hope you enjoy. Dr. Diaz, thank you for joining me. And I, I really appreciate, you know, learning from you because I actually watched the film Disruptors mm -hmm. um, by uh, Stephanie Sochik. And I think that the, the topic of ADHD or ADD, and maybe we can get into the kind of the, the subtleties, sure, is something sure. that gets, you know, not only it's thrown around a lot, but I think a lot more people are dealing with it than um, maybe we're, we're aware of. And, and so just to start out, I'd love to know how you got into, I know you, you work with child and adolescent psychology, but just sort of how you have, you know, how your journey has brought you here. Sure. Um, well, I, you know, I'm actually so glad you asked that question. Uh, and thank you for having me, by the way. Um, I recently posted uh, on social media and sort of did my own little uh, celebration of what I'm referring to as my 20-year ADHD anniversary. I happened to stumble upon an old notebook where I wrote my very first set of notes with uh, my graduate school advisor. It was our very first call. And I had initially been meant to work with somebody who specialized in social anxiety. And when I wasn't able to work with them, they paired me with uh, Dr. Andrea Cronus at the University of Maryland. We had a call. I took notes and in these notes, I'm literally writing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and like the treatments for it. And I can clearly recall sitting in my parents' living room, freaking out that I was going to start graduate school and that I was going to be specializing in ADHD because that's who would take me essentially. Um, and so initially it wasn't my choice to specialize in ADHD, but um, the reason I posted about it is because and it gets me a little choked up is, is because, you know, you don't know when you're going to find your purpose and your passion. It sort of finds you. This is what I was meant to do. Children with ADHD, their families, the parenting challenges, the school-based challenges, all the amazing strengths that we can squeeze out of this beautiful brain. This is what I was meant to do. So my journey really started kind of by accident. Um, but in hindsight, definitely these kiddos are, are sort of my, my kiddos. These are the kids I was meant to really, really focus on. Doesn't mean I don't, you know, work with kids that have a whole range of other concerns, but ADHD is my, my true passion. So it's been 20 years now of studying ADHD, treating ADHD, and uh, I feel like I've gotten to know a lot about this wonderful brain. What have you seen in the last even 10 years of research that is, is significantly different than maybe prior to the first 10 years that you were working in this field? So I think we've made really good headway um, in particular on understanding the brain function of ADHD um, and some really great sort of fMRI and MRI research brain scans. So research really pivoted to focusing not just on intervention development, but really getting some good information about the way that the brain might be different in somebody with ADHD compared to somebody without ADHD. And so we've really learned a lot more over the last 20 years, certainly even over the last 10, 
on the different, um, not only structural differences in brains of people with ADHD, but also the functional differences, right? So essentially structure is kind of like, how is it built? How is it, you know, what are the parts and, and what's going on with those? But then the structure and the function is like, well, how does it, why does that matter? How do certain networks talk to one another? And is that a good thing? Is it not a good thing? What's the deficit? What's the difficulty there? So we've learned a lot more about the differences in both structure and function of the ADHD brain. Um, And I think that's a huge leap forward, um, not only for our understanding, but to really, first of all, destigmatize the fact that this is not just, hey, by the way, this is, you know, bad behavior, um, environmental, et cetera. But like, there's really very real, there are very real differences there. And so I think that has been a lot of the work that, that I think has been done. Um, and then really on, a, on an actual practical level, because obviously brain-based research only takes you so far, you really want to know what, what can we do about it? And I think one of the other things we've done really well in the field is really hone in on how to better assess it how to diagnose it more accurately, and how to treat it in a way that can actually improve some of the challenges that come with with ADHD. I'm not that I'm not afraid of a little bit of science. And so if you're not afraid, and you'd be willing to sort of share with me at a, you know, at a reasonable level, I would love to break down kind of when you talk, when you really talk about, you know, what's the difference maybe in the structure of the, I don't know, is it frontal cortex, like in relationship, like if we could also maybe go there a little bit, because I I think it is fascinating when it's something in a way, it's like when people talk about having um, certain diseases that somebody can't see. And so it's almost like we relate to it differently if we can understand the mechanism a little bit. Um, if you yeah. wouldn't mind, you know, sort of dividing and, and explaining the structure differences and you don't have to get crazy, but just, I'd love to know that. And then, um, kind of the, some of the functional differences. Well, the good news, Gabby, is that I am not a neuroscientist myself, so I won't go too into detail for fear of making a complete fool of myself as well. So, um, but at a very basic level, Um, We have some science and some research to suggest that there are certain parts of the brain that actually are smaller in volume, essentially smaller in size um, among people with ADHD. I really do not want people to misinterpret that as like smaller brain equals less intelligence. That is absolutely not the case. We're just talking about the fact that by noticing that there are very real differences in the size and in in. In, in, in exchange in the way that in the size and the way that certain parts of the brain function, it tells us that there is something going on neurologically. Um, so there are certain parts of the brain that are a little smaller. That's let's call those the structural differences, right? The, the way that it's kind of put together. There are functional differences in terms of how the networks of different parts of the brain talk to one another. So think about it kind of like a relay race where you have the first person that takes off on a relay has to carry the baton and then passes successfully to the next person who passes it to the next person. If the baton drops, you're probably not going to get around as fast. You might lose the race, right? So one of the things we know is that there are certain networks that unfortunately kind of almost like short circuit in the ADHD brain. So they don't carry messages back and forth as efficiently as they should, meaning as quickly as they should, or as effectively as they should, meaning they might not ever carry the message at all. They might drop the baton. 
Um, And so that might mean that the child or the person with ADHD is picking up information from its environment and somewhere in the brain, the baton gets dropped, which means that they can't execute. They can't do anything with the information they just picked up. So that slows them down. It makes things harder. It takes makes things take longer. It makes things feel more challenging, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, we know that there are some neurotransmitters, which are chemicals in the brain. They're chemical messengers. So I guess in this metaphor, let's just go with, it's the actual baton. Uh, I hope no neuroscientists come, come after me after that one, but let's go with that. It's the actual baton that's supposed to be passed. Okay, so there's a chemical chemicals in the brain that are used to communicate between part one and part two and part 15. And unfortunately, we know that there are certain neurochemicals that are lower or underactive in the brain um, and some that are actually overactive. One of the primary ones we know affects uh, children and adults with ADHD is dopamine. And the last thing I'll say about this is really just that dopamine is the feel good hormone. It makes you feel awake and alert and tuned in and motivated and excited about things. And unfortunately, the ADHD brain is dopamine deprived, if you will. So it's always hungry for more stimulation that's going to make it feel activated. Um, And so I, I often tell parents and really anybody who will listen that if the ADHD brain is always hungry, it makes sense that they're always looking for food. And food in this case is pretty much any stimulation that is going to get the brain excited. Uh, So those are the sort of main three things, structure, function, and then these neurotransmitter differences. And there there is some uh, science suggesting that you can inherit this, you know, and isn't isn't it um, more common that girls inherit it? Right. From the parents and and sort of boys, maybe that's a little bit of a could be either one. Well, it's actually um, one of the most heritable psychological disorders or neurological disorders um, uh, known, right? So we know that upwards of 50% um, heritable from parent to child. And where you have one child who has ADHD, you're likely to see siblings who have ADHD. So it does run in families and it does kind of uh, genetically get passed along. There is some recent research to suggest that um, girls have a higher heritable rate of ADHD than boys, but not so much that we would say boys aren't inheriting the ADHD, um, you know, sort of components. They're, they're also, uh, it also tends to run in families. But, you know, keep in mind that anything that we inherit, um, any, any of this is also interacts with the environment. And so there is a gene by environment interaction. Um, in some cases, you might inherit all the genes that say you should have ADHD and the environment is so supportive, so structured, so well-organized, whatever it may be, that you may never see the manifestation of the challenges that might be related to ADHD. And so a child might look like they don't have ADHD when in fact, neurologically, they might. Wait, Dr. Diaz, can you break that down for me? When you say an environment that's so structured and so so supported, can you tell me what that looks like? Because that's a that's a really interesting idea because I think most of us, feel as parents, um, you know, I always joke, it's such a moving target, right? Like um, how to, how to connect with your child, how to speak their language, how to, you know, get them to self-manage and things like that. So in this instance, and and you can make up a scenario 
you know, what the, you could take one person and put them in one environment. It might express itself versus a different type of environment. And um, it, it maybe doesn't show up at quite as much. Sure. Well, let's think about either home or school, right? So first we'll go with home. You know, you might have one child who has ADHD and does really well in a home environment where parents are like, look, you're going to figure this out. We're going to let you kind of self-manage, self-direct, and eventually you're kind of going to figure it out. The problem is that for the ADHD brain, it might take much longer to quote unquote, figure it out. And there might be too many bumps and bruises and crash landings along the way that will therefore start to affect the child's self-esteem, the interaction between the child and the parent. Might it eventually work out? Maybe, but, but it might be with a lot of bruises and a lot of quote unquote damage along the way. And so what we know is that the ADHD brain does better in a, small, in a more structured environment where expectations are clear, consistent, and there's sort of a pattern and a rhythm to the way that you expect the brain to organize itself. Whereas a child without ADHD, you know, if you put them in an unstructured environment, they might catch on a little quicker. They might not have as many bumps and bruises and figuring it out. Um, and similarly for a school setting, we know that kids with ADHD really thrive in classrooms that have some good organization and structure, very consistent expectations, and a teacher that sort of manages not only the expectations, but also gives them a little bit of wiggle room for some of their hyperactivity, impulsivity, their need for breaks, their need for creativity, that kind of thing. But just to throw one additional loop in there, there are some children who have ADHD who, if you place them in a setting that's much more expressive, creative, open, let them really figure it out, but with a little bit of guidance, they thrive in that environment too, because the ADHD brain is always looking for dopamine creative food input that's going to feed it. Um, and there are some settings that are less structured that actually provide that. But really, it comes down to understanding individually what kind of brain does this child have and what how does the ADHD actually manifest itself in real life, not just because we're saying they have ADHD, but like in real life, how do they have ADHD and what setting would make the most sense for them? When you say that again, this is for maybe people who are don't know much about ADHD or are even maybe have children and they're sort of saying, hey, my child isn't learning the same way. They're not responding the same way, you know, things like that. When you say in the ways that they have ADHD, I think we all just think, oh, um, maybe they, they're distracted and there's um, a, a little more impulsive or kind of direct and, you know, things like that. But what you're saying is it shows up also differently for for different Very differently. Um, yes. people. Can can you tell me what that looks like? Sure. So so I like to think about it kind of like we know that ADHD has 18 symptoms, um, and if you can imagine those kind of um, music mixer boards, you know, if you were doing a little like music equalizing, so you have 18 buttons that go, let's say, from zero to 100. And all 18 of those you are fiddling with to figure out exactly what version of ADHD does this person have? What is their unique rhythm of ADHD, if you will? So simply saying that somebody has ADHD doesn't really tell us that much about on an average Monday, on an average Saturday morning, how does the ADHD actually show up? How does it convert to behavior 
or habits or skill deficits or challenges in the way that they have to function in their world? Are they so distractible they're not getting their work done? Are they so distractible they're not learning in the classroom? Are they so hyperactive they can't be seated? Their parents have suspended uh, activities and vacations because the hyperactivity is too too much to manage. Um, you tell me in that little equalizer way, you know, exactly which symptoms, at what level, in what settings for this child, and then we have a really good understanding of this particular person's version or rhythm of ADHD. I use a lot of metaphors. I hope, hope that works. No, it's, it's great. Can you, if, is there a differentiation between like, for example, I have a friend who was diagnosed at 10 with ADD. Um, is there, you know, can you explain, you know, some of the differences and, and I have to say like, as again, as an outside person who I I have three daughters, I I don't have a son, but I have a very um, active partner. My husband is, you know, and for sure when he was a kid, you know, definition of like hell on wheels, um, incorrigible, like these, you know, constantly, um, and yet directed in the correct way. And this, and the disruptors talks about this. So I want to bring, I just want to remind people that there is a lot of superpower. If there can be an understanding and systems put in place and people understanding and the person who's dealing with this finding, these, these outlets to really, because it's actually, you know, their, their capacity to hyper-focus or the creativity and things like that. So I think I'm not actually interested in putting a stigma on it. I'm interested in sort of saying, Hey, is this also a part? Cause it feels for me as like an outside person, like a very natural way that humans would behave. Um, and, and it, and it, it and it would have its incredible strengths you know, we're, and maybe before when we were more naturally active or outside or living in this way that this type of behavior uh, probably worked better than sit down at your desk and be quiet, ride the train and here's your cell phone, right? right. So when I see it, I, I wonder, going back to my 10-year-old, you know, friend, some of it, could it not also be a natural kind of moment in development for a young person. And I would think especially males because of testosterone and other natural behaviors. Sure. Yeah, no, I think one of the things that you're highlighting is probably one of the toughest parts of uh, not only assessing ADHD and diagnosing ADHD, but also really deciding what kind of treatment, if any, is necessary. And that's because we know that ADHD, all 18 symptoms occur in all humans at different levels, right? If you look at all the 18 symptoms, it's like, who's not a little inattentive or distractible or forgetful or disorganized sometimes? So one of the biggest sort of details that's super important for people to understand about diagnosable ADHD versus you know, average behavior or an average point in development is that the behavior clusters with at least six different problems. It isn't just one or two, it's at least six, all clustered together, happening at a much higher rate than is typical for that developmental level, and perhaps most importantly, causing functional impairment, meaning it's getting in the way. Something is getting in the way of what you're supposed to be doing in your setting. Um, And so it is true that a lot of people look back in time and they say, well, yeah, but we didn't used to have so much ADHD. What's going on? Um, Some of it is that we assess it 
better. We were more accurate in our diagnoses. But some of it absolutely has to do with the fact that the expectations of society, school, competition, you name it, expectations of society have continued to go up, which means that if you are inattentive, unfocused, distractible, disorganized, hyperactive, impulsive, and you are not producing in a more competitive or more structured environment, you are going to kind of be named, right? Somebody's going to point and say, something's going on here. And that's where the functional impairment comes in. You're not producing whatever it is you need to produce in the setting that you're trying to function in. So that is where it separates from average developmental little hiccups to this actually sounds like it could be something very different. And if we don't intervene, this child, teenager, young adult, and God forbid adult is going to tumble through instead of riding through. Right. That, that's really my biggest goal in doing all the work that I do with ADHD is not to get people to, you know, sort of feel like, oh, yeah, ADHD is a thing. I, I, I care mostly about the experience of a child or a teenager or a young adult with ADHD and the fact that it doesn't have to be so bumpy. And if we don't give them the intervention and the, and the direction that they need, it's probably going to be very bumpy. And, and that's what I'm trying to prevent. It's just, it can be smoother. We can absolutely put them on the right track to use all of those beautiful strengths and some of the ways that their brains are uniquely qualified to do some really great things. But if we don't intervene, it often either takes longer to figure it out or as maybe, you know, um, some of the examples, some of your friend or your husband might tell you, yes, I eventually figured it out. And yes, I'm very successful now. And yes, you know, I, I got all of these things, these strengths, um, and I get it now. But yeah, you know, eighth grade was not great. Sophomore year wasn't great. I felt like I was always getting called out. I feel like I was always behind everybody. I always wondered what was wrong. My parents were always frustrated with me. It was just so much bumpier and it just didn't need to be as bumpy. And so that's really the reason to assess, diagnose, and treat. So let's, let's just take just for a second. So, you know, I think all of us can agree. I would, I would imagine you taking your path, doing your, your job, you yourself have run into probably very large challenges. And those are the same exact things that also have made you probably the badass that you are right now. (laughs) Thank you. But no, but it's true, right? Like, oh, you can't do that or you can, or you're a female or you come from whatever family, like who knows, right? And so I guess for me is when I, when I hear this idea about like, okay, eighth grade, 10th grade, there is a, there is a part where a lot of parents or, or someone is going to be like, oh, this too is a part of life. This is, this too is what makes us better and great. So where's, where does that break? Where does the line, and you said it shows up in clusters is it where, you know, the clusters are things where it's now a, a jeopardy for the person and possibly their family? Because I know there's frustration and other, you know, types of ways of acting out. Maybe we could start with a, with a younger person. You have a two, three-year-old or a four-year-old and they have a lot of energy. But maybe it, it's showing up differently. They're they they're not playing well with other kids. They they go to those little the little kindergarten and they kind of can't follow along. If I'm a parent, you know, what's a first step at um, at diagnosing? 
or recognize well, if, it. You know, I think if you're a parent and, and you are concerned that the pattern of behavior is pretty consistent. So that's a real, you know, that's a real tale, right? Telltale sign is like, it's, it's consistent. We're not just talking about a few tough moments or, you know, you had a little fight with one friend, but you have all of these other friends. We're talking about a pretty consistent pattern of challenges and difficulties that are starting to affect the child and or the family very negatively. And so if you add up, and I think this is really where you can wrap your mind around it. It's like, yeah, bumps and bruises are part of life. We do want kids to develop some resilience, some grit. Things aren't always going to come easy. That's not what we're trying to do. But if it's as frequent as is common for children and teens with ADHD, that's a lot of bumps and bruises. You know, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? It's like, well, you know, everybody else without ADHD only had 15 paper cuts. They have a thousand, you know, eventually it starts to hurt. And so that is really the issue is it isn't that we're trying to like wipe away the the challenges. And we know that the challenges do give them some grit and tenacity. And we love that. But um, but it also usually hurts. So for parents, what you're looking for is like, what is the consistent pattern? Am I starting to see that my child compared to other kids of their developmental level is struggling socially, struggling in the classroom? struggling at home. I'm constantly calling their name. I'm constantly redirecting. I feel frustrated with them. They themselves are quote unquote ruining family moments. This is one of the things that breaks my heart. You know, kids will eventually say like, it was me again. And we, (laughs) they start to know it's them. They're the ones who ruined Christmas or Hanukkah or the trip to Disney or the family outing or dinner time. They get it. They start to, it just starts to accumulate. Um, So I really want to sort of point very carefully to like the frequency, the sheer frequency of difficulties is just too high. So before we go on to like the first steps of, of trying to navigate, just getting help and getting resources, let's say you're a parent who, well, first of all, can we decipher between ADD and ADHD? Sure. So ADD is technically a retired term, if you will, in the psychology world um, or the psychiatry world. Um, It stands for attention deficit disorder. And the reason it was retired is because eventually what uh, was decided is that it would all be called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And it has three subtypes. Predominantly inattentive subtype is what was formally referred to as ADD. So predominantly inattentive, meaning most of your difficulties are with relate are with regard to attention, and you don't have too much of the hyperactive impulsive uh, component. Then there is the predominantly hyperactive impulsive subtype, which means not so much a focus issue, mostly hyperactivity impulsivity. This is the least common, and we're more likely to see that in really young kids, mainly because we can't really see problems with focus and attention just yet. And then there's the combined subtype, which is the most common subtype, especially among boys. Predominantly inattentive is more common among girls, the the formerly ADD uh, terminology. Um, And so what we find is that in the combined subtype, you have at least six symptoms of inattention and at least six symptoms of hyperactive impulsive behavior. So a total of 12 symptoms out of the 18. And let's say I'm, I have been diagnosed myself. I'm a parent. I'm getting ready to have a baby. And I've been diagnosed with ADHD. And I know there's this, this possibility, you know, it's like anything. And um, is there anything 
showing up in lifestyle, not just with the with the child that comes out, and I want to get into that, but for the adult that um, let's say I, I'm, I'm managing it through lifestyle habits and choices, and I have systems in place um, to kind of help me keep that soft structure or just keep things rolling. Um, is there anything, have they seen, I'm just curious if they've seen anything that a, a person, a parent can do um, to maybe help minimize or I don't know, change the outcome or the, the potential for my, for my child? Um, well, sure. There's plenty because this is actually where the environment sort of begins is in the way that the parent is parenting and sort of what is the home structure. Um, you know, probably the, the first thing we would be thinking of is if if you, in fact, are managing your symptoms of ADHD or ADD by um, your habits, your systems, your organizational structure, you're pro- that's probably all you need to do as a starting point is just make sure that the environment is as, you know, sort of... Um, quiet and rhythmic as possible, right? Really routinized and structured. And obviously, as I say that, you know, anybody listening is like, well, that doesn't sound like when what happens when a baby is born. <laughs> so this is the problem. The problem is that when a baby is born and it throws the family and the whole system into a little bit of a chaos, that is likely to then exacerbate the parents' uh, symptoms of ADHD. They're going to be sleep deprived. They're not going to be eating. They're probably not exercising and taking care of themselves. They're tired. There's a crying baby. They have to manage so many different things. And now all of a sudden the system is starting to get a little chaotic and a little uh, disorganized. So the best thing that a parent with ADHD can do, especially at the beginning of their sort of newborn toddler stages, is pay careful attention to even the small things that they can do to get um, a rhythm and an organization and a structure back in place. The ADHD brain really does so much better. It gets quieter, it gets happier, it gets more homeostatic, if you will, in a rhythm that is predictable and consistent until it goes looking for stimulation and creativity, in which case we open it and invite some of that delicious creative energy in and then we close it again and put them back on a consistent rhythm. So what we're trying to do for kids is let them have those outlets, let them go in search of dopamine, let them go find some creative, you know, things to kind of futz around with. But then we need to reestablish some consistency because that's where they're going to thrive. So parents can do, parents who have ADHD themselves, one of the best things they can be doing is really self-identifying in what way does my ADHD affect the way that I run my life and my world? How does it frustrate me? When do I get overwhelmed or disorganized or feel like I'm in chaos? And then and then figure out what little tweaks you can make to your lifestyle to try to reestablish some of that rhythm, um, because it will absolutely help your children who might themselves have ADHD. That I always think it's interesting where for example, the tendency of, of us parents is, oh, something's wrong. Like, for example, if something's like wrong with a child, I'm putting that in air quotes because, you know, it's growing up and, you know, uh, going through different stages is I really, it was pointed out a long time ago about how parents would like drop their kids off like to you and be like, okay, fix my kid and I'll pick them up when they're fixed versus it is the collective. It's everybody in the house also getting on board because 
I think that that's a very hard thing for us parents to look at too, is that we will have to make changes in support of the, the environment and the child to kind of elevate the whole thing. So I, I think it's really important if someone's listening to this, if, if the child is going through something, don't be afraid to get involved in also seeing how the changes that you can make. Cause I, I think it really does. Um, it just makes that change happen a lot quicker and a lot smoother um, than like, Oh, they're broken, fix them, medicate them, do whatever. And then, you know, let's get them back home and, you know, get back, get on with it. So I, I think that suggestion is, is really great. So if someone has a young child and they're seeing these clusters of behaviors, you know, where do they go or what's a first step for getting real help? Because I think that that is one of the things that can be hard in dealing with any type of um, new situation is getting that right or, or that sort of, or, you know, kind of oriented towards results kind of help. Sure. Well, I think, look, pediatricians are always going to be first line um, pediatricians and teachers, I should say, you know, they see thousands of children, you know, and so they have a really good normative comparison sample, right? They, they, they know what feels like it's off course and what feels like it's still totally normal for this developmental stage. So a teacher who's been teaching first grade for, you know, 10 years has a lot of children to compare your child to. So if you go to the teacher and say, can you tell me if you think my child is struggling in these ways, teachers are usually quite good at being able to say, look, this still feels really normal to me. It doesn't feel, it's actually causing some real trouble. So teachers can be a really great first place to kind of get a sense of where your child is on any uh, spectrum, if you will. Um, and pediatricians at your well visits, you can also be raising to them. I, I think my child is having trouble focusing. This is what I'm hearing from teachers. This is what I'm hearing from their little friends or my, my, you know, I'm noticing. And so pediatricians can be really great at not only giving you some feedback about how far off the beaten path, you know, your child might be, but also at assessing um, ADHD. So that is one avenue you can certainly pursue psychologists, psychiatrists, other mental health professionals that are pediatric, that specialize in, in children, I think would be a, a second, you know, sort of um, next step. A lot of times uh, parents will come to us after they've checked with their pediatrician and their pediatrician kind of identifies there might be a little bit of trouble here. Trouble and of course, there are some beautiful strengths too. But this is usually what brings people in is like, this is causing a problem of some sort and we need to, to figure out what's going on for my child. And then um, certainly as you work with your mental health professional, there are other professionals that can be brought in to really help with any number of uh, challenges your child might have. You know, occupational therapists at school, if your child is having some social challenges, the child can be working with um, a therapist as well. If there's also, and this is, I guess, one of the unfortunate other parts is that ADHD has a lot of what I refer to as first cousins in the brain. Meaning where you see ADHD, you're likely to see a couple of other uh, diagnoses that are closely nearby. And that includes things like anxiety, some, you know, sort of tantrums or oppositional behavior, depressed mood, self-esteem challenges. So where we see ADHD, we're likely to see some related 
diagnoses and concerns. And so those are also something that need to be addressed in, in good treatment. When somebody, let's say they start to, they go, okay, we're recognizing there's something and we're going to go down this, this path of, of, you know, improving the situation. A lot of times I, I think as parents, you get very concerned that the first thing that will happen is they go, oh, we're going to throw medication at the situation. But yeah. there's actually quite a lot of things. You talked about putting a system in place, some gentle reminders. Can you share the things that, you know, sort of get experimented with first to, to help the child and, and sort of smooth out the environment prior to, to medication? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things I want parents to understand is going in to see a mental health professional to see if there's ADHD and or anything else going on with your child does not automatically mean your child is going to be quote unquote put on medication because you will have the ultimate decision making power as far as that's concerned. Will a psychiatrist or provider suggest that as a first line approach? Perhaps, but that shouldn't stop you from going in to find out if there might be a problem. And then you can, if you really feel strongly about wanting to start medication, you can decline the invitation to participate in that treatment, if you will. So I don't ever want that to be the reason parents don't come in in the first place. You can decide once you have better information what course of action you want to pursue. But that being said, um, one of the things we know is that with or without medication, behavioral interventions for children with ADHD are critical. So meaning if you're going to put your child on, a, on medication, they should still be, you should still be getting some behavioral interventions and supports in place. If you're not going to pursue medication, you should especially be thinking about what kinds of behavioral strategies you can be using. So essentially, um, we know that ADHD ends up manifesting as behavior, right? There are specific things that your child either does well or does not do as well. And what we want to do in behavioral uh, therapy is really figure out which behaviors are we trying to reinforce, meaning we want more of that, and which behaviors are we trying to reduce. And we can think very creatively and strategically using um, behavioral interventions that have been studied and supported in research. They demonstrate very, very um, good effects, especially over the course of development, what it is your child needs to thrive in the environment that they're in. My personal favorite, I call these um, recipes. So we can think of the behavioral strategies as ingredients, right? So um, let's say uh, putting up a routine, using a reward, taking things away, giving them neutral feedback. Those are all ingredients. And the goal of behavioral interventions is to help you mix and match those ingredients to develop a good recipe. So we want children with ADHD require, will do best in a situation where some of these strategic um, parenting efforts are in place. Children without ADHD, this is just good parenting, but like not essential. So for children with ADHD, here are my favorite recipes. My first favorite recipe is always going to be structured routine, meaning what is their morning routine, what is their homework routine, and what is their bedtime routine. Those three routines are probably the most critical. And with those routines, because you need them to complete them, you need them to be on task. You need them to, you know, reduce disruptive behavior while they're doing these routines. You're trying to build a habit. And the best way to do that is to add a reward. So routines plus rewards, my favorite starting recipe. Typically, you can see some really nice 
reduction of disruptive behaviors and improvement of some of the positive behaviors like leaving the house on time, completing the morning routine, finishing their homework, turning their homework in, getting to bed on time, turning off electronics. I could go on. These are all things that typically happen in the context of daily routines. And so if we can get them to understand exactly what the expectations are at different times of the day and then build those habits with rewards, you can actually do quite a bit of managing of the ADHD symptoms with just that starter recipe. And then there's, there's others. There are some other things that parents can be doing, but that's one of the top ones. You know, what's interesting for me. So when I hear this, it, it's an interesting mix of like, well, they could, why couldn't they do that anyway? Do you know what I mean? Like, but is it, is it the habit and the consistency and then, you know, sort of that positive response because a reward obviously would give you some dopamine. Um, is it just grooving that pattern that really helps facilitate the child's ability to, you know, task completion and then, and kind of continue through? Yes. I really love the, the term that you just use, like grooving the pattern, right? Where it's like, now they can sort of just follow along because it's such a little groove. You can just kind of ride smoothly right down. It's like a paved road, right? Do you want to be on a gravel road? You can probably still get down the street, but the paved road makes it so much easier. Um, so it's like paving a road and there are very specific ADHD related challenges that make that difficulty difficult for children with ADHD to do. One being that they are, they tend to be what we call time blind. So they have a really hard time noticing time, paying attention to time, knowing when time is passing, estimating time. So if they're supposed to be ready, quote unquote, ready in 45 minutes, they don't know what 45 minutes feels like. They're losing track. So that's part one. Part two is the ADHD brain has a really hard time organizing itself in strategic steps. So if you give them 10 things that need to get done as part of a collected routine, those 10 things are happening in very bippity-bop fashion. They're moving over here, then they're moving over there, and then they do this, then they do that. So maybe it does get done, but it's very disorganized. So a routine kind of gives them not only when does it start, when does it end, but what is the flow? What are the things, what's the collection of tasks that we're calling this morning routine? And when they do that in this very routine way over and over, again, with some reinforcement, it does become a groove. It's sort of like their brain doesn't need to think about it as much. Last thing I want to mention is that when routines are tedious, uh, and what routines aren't tedious? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of tediousness in routines, but when they're tedious, their brains are also much more prone to being more distractible having a really hard time staying motivated to get things done, you know, playing with the dog or the cat instead of getting their shoes on. So, so now their brain is being pulled in more directions, not just the direction of the routine. Whereas a child without ADHD might be able to make it through their routine with minimal distractibility from point A to point Z pretty easily, whereas a child with ADHD will be all over the place. And perhaps the worst part of this is that means that almost every day they're going to be hearing their name, their gentle correctives, frustrated correctives, a lot of redirection. And that's just Monday. And then it happens again on Tuesday. And then it just creates this like really, you know, negative pattern. Um, so if we can equip them with something like a routine, sometimes I joke that it's like plugging in the directions in your navigation system in your car. 
if you're not very good at getting where you need to go and you're using your navigation all the time, guess what happens when you don't have directions? You get lost and you're all, you don't know which end is up. That's me, by the way. I'm terrible with directions. <laughs> so uh, routines are like telling the child's brain, you are going from point A to point Z. Let me help you see exactly what turns you need to make all the way there. And that way you don't give the brain as much room to get distracted and to be off course. And is it, un- is it uncommon, for example, let's say someone has like an 11 or 12 year old and, and they've been fighting this, you know, since the kid was three or four to have them think, oh, well, maybe we should go get help. And, and these kinds of systems in place at least help smooth out the, the road a little bit for people. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happens. I mean, by the time anybody has come to see me, patterns have been developed. They have found their pain points, if you will, where they find themselves getting frustrated or their child is frustrated or they're having more arguments. And the very first thing that we want to do is smooth out the edges so that we can reduce the negative interactions. Um, And so that is often where we start. I often think about even the transition of of going through adolescence, if this hasn't been sort of dealt with or someone isn't understanding what this young person is going through, I can imagine that it would uh, add a layer, especially because of the social ramifications where if the kids are getting into hassles at school and always getting, you know, nagged at by the teachers, that this could be a pretty um, frustrating scenario for the, especially, I mean, for both, for the parents and for the child. Can we kind of visit uh, like a 30,000 foot view of what it, how, how typically ADHD would show up in a very young child and then kind of how it starts to maybe change or show up through adolescence and even young adults? Sure. So I think in young children, we all have this kind of quintessential picture of like the bouncing child who's very hyperactive, very impulsive. I want to be very clear in highlighting that that may be the case for children who have the combined type or the predominantly uh, hyperactive impulsive type. But in children who have the predominantly inattentive subtype, what we tend to see is that they're very quiet. They don't disrupt anything. They fly under the radar. But you will hear eventually they seem to be spacing out. They missed what I said. They don't seem to be listening when I'm talking to them. They're missing some instruction and they're not getting stuff done. So we might see a lot more disruption in the academic setting for the predominantly inattentive kiddos. And then the hyperactive impulsive ones, well, they are more obvious um, because they tend to have a lot of difficulty staying seated. They're constantly fidgeting. They're always moving from thing to thing. And so it might be really difficult for them to function in settings where they're expected to kind of contain all of that energy. Then as development continues, let's say all of the above have problems with inattention. Those tend to stay pretty consistent and pretty stable. Whereas hyperactive impulsive symptoms do thankfully start to kind of come down a little bit. The brain, you know, we have development on our side here. So the brain is starting to wire itself. We're starting to get a little help. And so we tend to see the hyperactivity impulsivity start to come down with one important caveat, not always, by the way, sometimes we still see that restlessness, but the impulsivity might not look the same as when they were younger. It might just look very different in teenage and young adult years where it transfers from blurting out things in the classroom, interrupting a lot to things like making impulsive decisions, 
And unfortunately, things like speeding in a car, being more likely to kind of um, get in little accidents or big accidents because of impulsive decision making, more risk taking behavior like drugs and alcohol and um, more indiscriminate decision-making around sexual activity, for example. So if impulsivity is still pretty prominent, and I said if, it's still pretty prominent in the teenage years, that would be where we would be thinking about paying very careful attention as risk-taking behavior. Are they you know, kind of making impulsive decisions that are gonna get them in trouble eventually? But thankfully, like I said, hyperactivity and impulsivity tend to die down a little bit as development goes. Thank God for that frontal lobe functioning, right? The frontal lobe is developing, um, the the brain develops from back to front and the frontal lobe is is coming online as they're getting older. So we're just, we're just waiting for it to, to kick on. Um, So thankfully that starts to improve. But what we do see um, is that the inattention starts to, or continues to create some difficulty. And what we might then start to see is even more pronounced challenges with something like executive functioning, right? Having trouble managing multiple classes or multiple demands, having trouble managing schoolwork and a sport they play or some other extracurriculars and social life. They just can't juggle all of those balls. And so they tend to be much more disorganized, a little more chaotic, Um, And that's important because if you think about these kids going on to either college or early career as young adults, we might then expect to see a lot of difficulty with um, being able to be on time, complete tasks um, as needed, whether that's an assignment in college or tasks as part of your job, right? Not not all uh, young adults will go go to college, but if they're going to go into the workforce, um, you know, we tend to see a lot of a lot more disciplinary action getting written up for showing up late, you know, potentially getting fired more often, switching jobs more regularly. And so we still see that sort of inattention, executive functioning, and some of the impulsive decision-making really start to to impact their, their functioning. And mainly because, you know, the more responsibility they have to take for managing everything, the more those challenges are going to get in the way, right? Whereas when they're younger, parents are still driving the car more more regularly and kind of creating that structure and that scaffolding. And as they get a little bit older, parents are expecting they should be able to do this without my support. So they take their hands off the wheel. And unfortunately, um, teenagers and, and young adults with ADHD probably still need a little bit more of that support. And is the brain, is the frontal lobe like developing or the frontal cortex going until we're about 25? How, when does it really? Until about 25 is what the science tells us that it's, you know, and this is why, um, I don't know, you know, this is just like a fun fact. It's kind of like one of the reasons that uh, you can't rent a car without having, you know, uh, an adult co-signer um, under the age of 25 in most states. And there's a reason for that. And it's because of frontal lobe functioning. Um Insurance, car insurance premiums, those start to decline after 25. And there's a reason for that. It's because we know that the brain finally rounds out with its frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is literally like your executive assistant. It tells you where you're supposed to be. It manages your time. It helps you organize. It helps you make decisions. It helps you control your emotions. It helps you process information in a way that allows you to weigh consequences more uh, effectively. And so you know, we can see, you can almost see it happen. I have the fortune of teaching a class that I developed at NYU called 20 something. And it's been fascinating to almost literally watch as the brain is coming online while they're in my class. 
Um, so you can sort of see when those mechanisms are starting to kick in. How much if, if uh, again, a young adult, we're not as in, in, in control of their day to day, but if I have a young, I'm, and obviously I'm always going to be pushing a healthy lifestyle. Sugar is probably not anyone's real friend, but I am curious um, when you have a younger person and teenager, how much, okay, getting outside, being somewhat active, you know, not eating a bunch of processed and garbage, how does that help the brain find more quiet spaces? Oh, gosh, listen, the lifestyle changes can make a really big difference for sure. I think what we've done in the field is we've shied away a little bit from talking too much about that. And there's and I think there's a reason. And the reason is because for a while, people were so focused on dietary changes for for managing ADHD that it steered them away from other treatments. And we know that dietary changes can absolutely help but it won't likely really shift the impairment that you see with ADHD in you. So you still need treatment. So I think the field as a whole seemed to like move away from talking about that. But let's think about this as just a brain, right? We know anybody with or without ADHD, if you haven't slept well, you're probably not going to attend to, to things and be super organized and super productive that day. If you haven't eaten, you're probably going to be hangry and unfocused. If all of those things are true. And on top of that, you haven't been managing your stress. You haven't been exercising. You haven't been, um, you know, interacting with friends in a pleasant way. It's going to affect your mood and your well-being. And you swish all of that around and it could literally look like ADHD when maybe it isn't even ADHD. It's just really all bad habits, right? So absolutely, with ADHD on board, we really do want to focus. And one of the things I tend to focus on as a starting point, we know that kids with ADHD have poor sleep overall. They have um, difficulty with sleep onset, meaning falling asleep. I had a child who once said, I'm really trying to fall asleep, but my brain won't let me. Uh, and he was like five when he said it. So he knew that his brain was like wiggling him and he could not fall asleep, even though he desperately wanted to be asleep. Not only sleep onset, but we know the quality of sleep, the time spent in REM sleep tends to be disrupted. So they get much more restless sleep. They don't wake feeling all, you know, amazing. They, they wake feeling often pretty tired, even though they might have slept the requisite number of hours. Um, and then sometimes we have kids who have all of those difficulties and the audacity of this brain, it wakes them up really early. So I hear from parents all the time, like, no matter what time they go to sleep, my child is up at five, raring to go. So what one of the things that we definitely want to do early is address any sleep difficulties, because sleep deficits plus ADHD is going to show up in the classroom or anywhere else this child needs to be. But then also, you know, dietary shifts just in terms of energy and being able to consume the right kinds of calories and avoid some of the crashes. All of that is very important. Last but not least, I often do tell parents, you know, one of the things we can literally set our watch to or our calendar to is that right around November to February in the Northeast. Um, so let me just highlight this in the Northeast. We know that the behavior is going to become more disruptive. They're going to be more dysregulated. They're going to seem more anxious. They're going to be more oppositional, whatever it happens to be. And we know that there is at least some seasonal piece to this. One, they're not going outside as often. They're not getting as much sunlight, which carries vitamin D. They're not getting as much exercise. They're more sedentary. 
it's darker, quicker. And the next thing you know, their whole mood and all of the ADHD symptoms are exacerbated. And then it seems to like lift a little bit as the weather brightens and we get more sunlight. So what does that mean? It means that especially if you can, you want to get your child to have all systems on go so that the brain has its fair shot at doing what it needs to do. And it almost sounds in a way it's it's sort of like anyone who's contending with this, they're just, a, it feels like a more sensitive version of how all of us are. I mean, that's what it, it, to me, if you put it that, do you, do we give young people, you know, omega-3s or any supplements to support? Uh, are we, are, do you, are you guys comfortable with that? Or what are the, some of the things? Yeah, no, I know a, a lot of psychiatrists actually who will often, especially for what we sometimes refer to as medication hesitant um, parents and uh, children, um, if they really, you know, just kind of want to stay off medication and want to try other more natural things, omega-3s um, and other, you know, sort of dietary and habit changes in their lifestyles. And then what I tell parents is do all of that. Absolutely. If that's where you'd like to start, let's do that. Let's put some consistent structure and behavioral interventions in place. Let's see what we have left over. And at each turn, we will reassess if there's anything else I would recommend or whether or not your child is making the kind of improvement we need to see for you to feel good about where they are. And if that's not the case, that might be where we start having a conversation about medication. And I'm just curious if somebody, maybe they have a little more of um, just a, a, they're contending with maybe a, a larger amount of ADHD, maybe their brain is working at just a different speed. Are there any kind of brain mapping programs? You know, like we, I've done this for sports where one part of the brain is more sleepy or what have you. And you go in these programs and you try to fly things with your brain and, you know, do all these games. Are are they incorporating anything else? I, I mean, I would imagine if you could get a young person to do some type of yoga or breathing exercises, obviously that's very good for their brain. I was just wondering if there's any, you know, of these other kind of fun programs or things that are showing up that, that are starting to get incorporated. Sure. Well, they certainly exist. Um, and we know that kids love them. And so it's easier to get them sort of engaged and involved. There are probably two things to think about if this is something that parents decide to pursue one is that they typically, those kinds of programs are typically not covered by insurance, um, even less so than any, you know, medication or behavioral therapy um, would get uh, covered. Um, and so this is, you know, it's kind of like an add-on. If you have the resources and you want to give it a shot, by all means, go for it. It's not going to do any harm. Your child might enjoy it. Um, and you might, you know, kind of feel like it's showing a little bit of improvement. And the science is is still rolling out on some of these programs and the longevity of the results. Um, but the second thing I would want parents to keep in mind is that typically the um, speed at which you see some improvement is going to be so slow that you might feel like you're putting in some real effort. Your child is listening to the you know, the music every morning or whatever it happens to be, or going to this, you know, um, center and flying the airplane with their brain or slowing down their breathing when they notice the biofeedback. But the reduction of impairment related to ADHD, the disruptive behavior and all of the challenges, it might be too slow for you to feel good about this being the only treatment that you're doing. Because, uh, you know, I often say to parents, 
as impairment is accumulating, I want you to imagine that it, there's a hole just kind of being dug and maybe you're throwing a little bit of the dirt back in the hole, but the hole is still pretty deep. We cannot afford that for them. We cannot afford that. They will eventually have to dig themselves out of that hole. They might fail grades. They might lose friends. They might feel badly about themselves. You might be fighting with them all the time. All the things that we know can go wrong. And so we can't afford for it to be kind of like a wait and see or a slow crawl to the finish line. And we, we need things to be working sooner rather than later. You've been doing this, like you said, for 20 years. How much has, you know, the internet and social media and all of these things exasperated this dynamic? Are you seeing an uptick um, in, in, in some of that? Well, you know, we're, we're waiting for the science to give us more, but I, and I know, and we know that one of the things we're starting to suspect is that uh, social media and other versions of technology is probably playing a role in a number of important things. One, it probably is training a reduced attention span. Um, and over time, you know, this is just going to keep playing out. I mean, we all have heard the little funny anecdotes of like, even those three minute TikTok videos are too long, um, you know, and so you, people just keep scrolling because what they need is like multiple inputs on a consistent basis. And this is what kids and teenagers are sort of growing up with. So they are essentially training their attention span to consume information in small little bits and bites before they lose focus and lose attention. So we suspect that this is probably going to affect how attention is organized and whether we see some long-term effects of that is entirely possible. But the other way that I think social media and the internet and technology are, are also, um, you know, sort of exacerbating um, ADHD and related issues is, um, is just in the dopamine production. We know that, you know, they're basically, I, I call these dopamine sources, right? Like they, they go seeking for dopamine sources. Their, their brain is dopamine hungry and they will find the best sources of dopamine that makes their brain feel the most enticed, activated, motivated, and, you know, happy. Um, and so they end up almost conditioning their brain to really only feel happy and motivated and, and uh, you know, sort of excited in these kinds of environments where it's like lots of information coming at you. So I think it does exacerbate the ADHD brain in that way as well. At a very practical level, it also exacerbates the daily struggles of parents trying to get their kids off of technology. So that may that might be, you know, sort of one of the top daily arguments that I hear from parents of kids of all ages is that once their child is on devices or technology of some sort, because their brain is so intoxicated by how happy and comfortable it feels at a really nice level of dopamine, it's even harder to get them to stop. It's harder to get them off. And unfortunately, what we often hear from parents is then it creates almost like a little drop in dopamine, like a crash. And so they're irritable after using it. Um, and so this turns into quite the, quite the struggle for children and teenagers with ADHD and parents who are trying to manage device use. Um, so those are some of the ways that I've seen it play out. And actually, to your point, I think it's all, every every kid, you know, ADHD yeah. or other. It's uh, you know, take a phone away from a kid, and it's like taking drugs away. It is no joke. It is like yeah, that's like my husband's but I, job. But I like the way you 
Yeah. And I like the way you framed it, Gabby, when you said that this, you know, the ADHD brain is just perhaps more sensitive to some of these things, because you're right. All of these things are true for kids without ADHD. These are daily hassles and struggles and challenges that parents are dealing with all the way across the board. It just so happens that the ADHD brain is more sensitive to a dopamine hit or more sensitive to criticism, more sensitive to failure, more sensitive to challenges. And so it, you know, it just accumulates more of that um, and, and eventually does a little more damage. But it is true. All kids, teens and young adults are struggling with some of this. And I, 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 one thing that really, really showed up for me in the Disruptors film was the one mother of a daughter where she, you know, it, it was like, oh, this wasn't the plan, right? And the disappointment of her, you know, and almost not believing that her daughter was going through this, that her daughter, you know, it was like a faking thing. And I guess I, I bring this up because I've, I've had my own, it's interesting as a parent, you don't want to admit that you feel disappointed sometimes because you thought you have a plan because we don't know better and this is how it's supposed to go. And then, you know, you have a, your child is, they're going to have their experiences and go through things. And I guess what I want to remind people is that a lot of the time, what you see is this, this will, can work out quite beautifully if, uh, you know, the kid can get assistance and people can, we learn different languages and we just learn to figure it out together as a family and a, a community but that I think it's okay for a parent to feel disappointed, but then to be like, okay, great. Now what are we going to do? Um, cause it's, I, 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 that really showed up for me when I saw that because I, I think it's like, oh, well they're different. Yeah. But it, it's great too. If we can, if you can help yeah. them just navigate because unfortunately school and our system, we have, it's like, we have one and these people, yeah. a lot of them might be extraordinary and extraordinary and do something way different. They just have to navigate this weird one system. It doesn't mean that's fair or right. And, and that really showed yeah. up for me. So um, Dr. Diaz, I, I really appreciate your time and your, your insight on this. And if I was missing anything that felt really important to you, um, you know, I'd like to make sure that I, I don't um, forget something that, that feels really, you know, significant. No, actually, Gabby, I think um, the point that you just highlighted is probably the the only point that I think is worth repeating. Um, gets me every time. I, I think uh, that people really do misunderstand um, ADHD as only being a deficit. And I think it is so important for children and anybody with ADHD to hear and really begin to understand how their brain can also be extraordinary. We don't want to sort of oversell the superpowers to the point where they don't pay attention to the challenges. But if they can really hone in on the fact that, I mean, I have seen kids, their brains put, make me feel like in awe of what they're capable of doing. But, you know, they require some good guardrails. They require a paved road and guardrails. And parents are absolutely allowed to be disappointed because all parents have ideas in their mind about what they hope and to accomplish and what they want their children to be. And anything that challenges those ideals is going to feel disappointing. That is quite literally the job of a parent is to have ideals, to encourage them. And then when kids are bumping up against those, you know, you'll feel disappointed. And then you figure out, well, what do we do next? 
Um, so I, I just don't want, I don't want parents to ever feel like they're not allowed to feel that just because now they know that the child actually has some challenges. Yes. And you're allowed to feel that this is really hard and disappointing, but more than anything, I really do hope that parents, children, educators, anyone who cares about the kids and the teens and the young adults with ADHD, if you can identify the challenges and put some supports in place and then identify those strengths and the ways that their brains do extraordinary things and put wind behind that, put some air behind that in whatever way you can, that's where you're going to see those uh, superpowers really just thrive. And that's the goal. And that's really the goal for all kids. But it's, like I said before, especially important for children with ADHD because the number of paper cuts, bumps, bruises, and negative, you know, sort of feedback loops that they will experience in comparison to kids without ADHD is much higher. The frequency is just too high. And so we need it. We need it for them to really start to understand what they're so good at and what they're so capable of. Um, and the more we do that, the more you will see what an amazing brain this ADHD brain can be. So I'm glad. Thank you for highlighting that. I think that's important. No, thank you, Dr. Diaz. And um, if people want to learn either more about you or if there's even a book or things that you like, uh, maybe you could direct them there. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I'm at Dr. Yamalis across platforms. Maybe eventually I'll post more stuff, but um, I'm also at the NYU Child Study Center uh, where we provide services for kids and families and for a wide range of uh disorders and diagnoses and challenges. Um, my sort of two places where I would direct parents as a starting point, um, the CHAD website, C-H-A-D-D, which is the National Organization for Children and Adults with ADHD, is ripe with information of all sorts for anyone who needs it. So I would highly recommend that. And then one of my um, favorite uh, YouTube series uh, related to ADHD is How to ADHD. Um, and, you know, I think she does such an incredible job of animating and explaining using science, but using layman's terms, um, how ADHD works and all the different areas that it might affect. And so that might be another resource that parents uh, and other people might find really helpful. Great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.